Good evening to you all, and uh, welcome to tonight's lecture in the Ralph Miliband series on the restructuring of world power, a series named after the father of the two, not the two themselves, that is Ralph Miliband and not David and Ed, uh, although they have both made significant contributions themselves to this series. I am absolutely delighted tonight. It's a pleasure and a privilege to introduce Professor Bob Cohen, who will explore whether, in the absence of an integrated regime, and we certainly have an absence of an integrated regime, we can resolve climate change questions. Robert Cohen is Professor of International Affairs at Princeton. Before that, he taught at several universities. I'll just name some, Swarthmore, Stanford, Brandeis, Harvard, and Duke. In addition to being the former editor of that illustrious journal, International Organization, he has been president of the American Political Science Association and president of the International Studies Association. He's also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and the American Philosophical Society. He has written many books and edited books which have been, in many ways, definitive of political science and international relations over the last few decades. I'm just going to recall some of them. Power and Interdependence, World Politics and Transition, a book he wrote with Joe Nye back in 1977, but it still echoes into the present time. After Hegemony, of course, which was an absolute classic, published in 1984, I shall come back to that in a moment. International Institutions and State Power, published in 1989. Power and Governance in a Partially Globalized World, 2002. And he's edited also many books, which are staples on all students reading lists in these areas, including uh, Transnational Relations and World Politics, edited with Joe Nye again, Neorealism and its Critics, Exploration and Contestation in the Study of World Politics, edited with Peter Katzenstein and Stephen Krasner. Robert Cohen has made <clears throat> unquestionably a world-class contribution to political science and international relations. When I think of the dominant figures of American political science, I tend to think of uh, Robert Dahl on the one side and uh, Bob Cohen on the other. Now, when I introduced him here last, which, can you believe it or not, is now eight years ago or something like that, I told a little story which happened to be a true story, although it's so good to be true. Is it too good to be true almost? But since no one in this audience, I think, was there other than us two, <laughs> I'll repeat it very briefly. And that was a little incident that took place at about 36,000 feet in a huge storm between Boston and, uh, and Los Angeles. I was flying to LA, and I was on the aisle seat, and on my right in the two seats going towards the window were two uh, missionaries on their way to LA and then taking flights to new destinations to pursue their work as missionaries. Anyway, they were reading the Bible and they were praying ever more loudly as the plane was being tossed around. And at some point, one of them turned to me and said, what are you reading? And I said, I'm reading a book by Bob Cohen called After Hegemony. And this person said to me, is it a good book? And I said, yes, actually, it's a really good book. And then they paused for a moment as a silence and said, but, ah, they said, is it a source of inspiration to you in times of trouble like these? <laughs> and I said, well, I mean, it is a source of inspiration to me, but actually, in times of trouble like these, I'm not sure its meaning carries over into a plane being tossed around at 36,000 feet. And then there was a pause for a moment, and the person said, but how good is it? And I saw that by now I was getting a bit irritated. And I said, it's outstanding, actually. 
And they said, but is it as outstanding as our books? <laughs> Pause. Is it the word of God? <laughs> At which point I had to confess that on a scale of excellence to the word of God, it fell somewhere very, very high up towards excellence, but just short of being, of course, the word of God. So it was a, an opportunity to classify it in this great, illustrious uh, uh, terrain. Anyway, I was reading uh, after Germany uh, a book that has certainly had a big impact on me, and it is a great pleasure, as I say, for me to welcome Bob Cohen again, and I hope you can all now join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thank you, David, very much. I asked David uh, if he would tell this, I, th I thought, apocryphal story. Again, because it's the best introduction I ever had from anybody. Uh, so it's, 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 worth, it's worth repeating. So thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be at LSE again with my good friend David Held, Marianne Klein, who was a student of mine, and other colleagues. Uh, uh, Ralph Miliband was a major figure in Western social science. He was the most important English-speaking uh, a Marxist political scientist of his generation and has an enduring impact through his writings as well as through his two sons. That's all I'm going to say about his two sons tonight. Uh, he studied at LSE and taught here for many years. It's appropriate to honor him with his lecture series and I'm honored to have been invited uh, to give this lecture. As a progressive, Ralph Miliband would surely have been interested in and concerned about climate change. He probably would have laid the causes of climate change uh, uh, quite clearly uh, to the account of capitalism, which is not my emphasis tonight. I believe that he and I could have had a vibrant and illuminating discussion on, on this subject, and I regret that he is not still here to comment on my lecture or to raise a difficult question from the floor. Uh, for two decades, governments have struggled to craft a strong, integrated, and comprehensive regulatory system for managing climate change. Instead, their efforts have produced a varied array of narrowly focused regulatory regimes, what David and Victor and I call the regime complex for climate change. The elements of, of this re uh, regime complex are linked more or less closely to one another, uh, sometimes conflicting, often mutually reinforcing. My talk and the paper on which it is based explore uh, uh, the continuum uh, uh, between comprehensive international regulatory institutions which are usually focused on a single integrated instrument at one end of a spectrum and highly fragmented arrangements at the other. Uh, uh, Victor and I outline an analytical framework to help to explain why regulatory efforts in different issue areas yield outcomes that vary along this spectrum. We argue that in the case of climate change, the structural and interest diversity inherent in, in, in world politics tends to generate the formation of a regime complex rather than a comprehensive uh, integrated regime. Uh, for policymakers keen to make international regulation more effective, a strategy focused on managing a regime complex may allow for more effective regulation than large political and diplomatic investments in efforts to craft a, a comprehensive regime. Uh, recent years have seen massive global summits, such as, as the Copenhagen meeting, organized around the goal of a single universal treaty. But our analysis suggests that more focused activities will have a bigger impact. In settings of high uncertainty and policy flux, regime complexes are not just politically more realistic, but they also offer some important advantages, such as flexibility and adaptability. So I'm going to begin by describing the regime complex for climate change, which has not been comprehensively designed, but rather has emerged 
and has resulted in many choices made mainly by states at different times and on different specific issues. Then I will provide some reasons why, why efforts to regulate climate change have yielded a regime complex instead of an integrated comprehensive regime. I, I argue that climate change is actually many different cooperation problems implying different tasks and that conflicts of interest are, are pervasive. Finally, in the last and longest part of the talk, I will explore ways to facilitate effective policy action on the pressing contemporary challenges of climate change. Efforts to create an integrated comprehensive regime are unlikely to be successful and risk diverting political and economic resources from narrower regulatory institutions focused on particular climate change problems. A strategy of focusing on loosely coupled elements is more promising, in my view, than a strategy of trying to maintain or, or develop a Kyoto-type regime. Well, that's, the, that's the talk in brief, the outline. Let me talk first about the regime complex for climate change, the descriptive part. International regimes with legally binding rules are formally constructed by elites who represent state interests as they conceive them. Elites face a wide variety of political pressures, both domestic and international, that determine how they calculate interests and make decisions on behalf of the state. And while states remain central to the process of making and implementing international law, many other non-state actors play important roles including NGOs, that, that is, non-governmental organizations, business enterprises and associations, and the media. The interests of, of these constituencies are multiple and often conflicting, since the benefits and costs of action fall differently and, and shift over time. The power resources are important, so are values and ideas about science. Uh, uh, to promote their interests, states build international regimes to help them realize uh, uh, the benefits from cooperation. Such institutions help states achieve their own objectives uh, through reducing contracting costs, providing uh, focal points, enhancing information, and therefore credibility, monitoring compliance, and assisting in sanctioning deviant behavior. That's the one sentence summary of after Germany. Uh, when states invest resources in building regulatory regimes, the outcomes can vary along a continuum. Uh, at one extreme are, are fully integrated institutions that impose regulation through comprehensive hierarchical rules. At the other extreme are highly fragmented collections of institutions with no identifiable core and weak or non-existent linkages uh, between regime elements. In between is a wide range of institutions. What we are calling regime complexes are arrangements of, the, of this loosely coupled variety um, located somewhere in the middle of this continuum. Regime contexts are marked uh, by connections between the specific and relatively narrow regimes that, that constitute them, but the absence of an overall architecture or hierarchy that structures the whole set. So let's look at the climate change regime complex and with this in mind. The most visible efforts to create climate change institutions cluster around the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. By design, the UNFCCC is nearly universal in membership. It spawned the Kyoto Protocol with the aim of, uh, of being a thickening and comprehensive regime modeled on the same process of institutional evolution on a smaller scale that occurred in the ozone layer, uh, where a single UN-sponsored treaty system emerged as a sole integrated treaty system. In, in practice, because Kyoto placed 
no obligations on developing countries, the Bonn Agreement of 1995, which in my opinion was a disaster, and because the United States, among a few other industrialized countries, the only, only major one now, never ratified the agreement, its effect was narrow, thin, and ultimately symbolic. The Kyoto Protocol is now being uh, renegotiated, or, or there are attempts to be made to renegotiate it and, and extend it under the auspices of the UNFCCC, in addition to which several other clusters of, inter of institutional efforts are taking shape. None is organized in a hierarchy. So it looks like this. That's not a hierarchy, right? That's a whole variety of different, of different regimes. While most efforts to, to set targets for warming emissions have focused on the UNFCCC, other regulatory treaties have a big impact on emissions of, uh, of greenhouse gases. Indeed, some studies suggest that the Montreal Protocol on the ozone layer has actually had a much bigger impact than Kyoto uh, on, on warming gases. Frustrated by lack of progress in the UNFCCC system, some governments have indeed explored further use of the Montreal Protocol to cut some of the specialized industrial gases that are linked to the ozone layer problem and also contribute to climate change. Several regional air pollution institutions may ultimately play an important role in climate change as well. Existing multilateral institutions, such as the World Bank, have also become a locus of institution building on climate change. For example, the World Bank sponsored the prototype Carbon Fund in the late 1990s to channel early investment in, into Kyoto's clean development mechanism, the CDM, the mechanism that encourages investment in low emission technologies and practices in developing countries. The experience with carbon fund projects, in turn, helped speed the process of designing rules for the CDM and probably raised the quality of, of the subsequent CDM projects. The bank, working with other multilateral institutions and through the Global Environment Facility, also manages the formal financial mechanisms that pay for developing country participation under the UNFCCC and, and, and the Kyoto Treaty. In addition to efforts to coordinate regulation of emissions, there is growing attention to the need to adapt to a changing climate. So you, so you see adaptation here as well. Uh, funding for, for adaptation has come partly from a small tax on CDM, on CDM transactions and mainly from, from government budgets. Efforts to build larger adaptation funds have faltered, in part due to the inability to link this funding need to a large, reliable source of resources. Uh, a government's promise to Copenhagen in December 2009 vastly to expand funding for adaptation. But of course, developed country governments promised in 1961 to give 0.7% of their GDP for foreign aid. And almost none of them have met that standard. The US, last I looked, was at 0.16. So promises don't mean a lot. There's a wonderful scene from the Maltese Falcon Humphrey Bogart film of a half a century or more ago, where Bogart, who's playing a, um, a detective who is pretending to be crooked, um, is delivering this, this Maltese falcon, which supposedly has jewels and is jewel encrusted, to a gangster who's promised him $25,000 for it. 1940, that's roughly worth a million dollars now. Um, so when Bogart delivers what they both believe to be the falcon, Green Street gives him $10,000. Actually, he palms 1000 but he gives him $10,000 once Bogart realizes that he's palmed 1000 of it. So uh, Bogart says, this is a lot less. This is a lot less than you promised me. And Green Street, the gangster says, that was $25,000 worth of talk. This is real money. So the promises at Copenhagen are talk. Uh, they're not real money. Uh, but they did promise vast, uh, vastly to expand adaptation funds. 
There's also a small but growing investment uh, in technologies known as geoengineering that might crudely offset global warming in case the climate starts, starts to change quickly in catastrophic ways. And I fear that you're going to hear a lot more about geoengineering in your lifetime because we're not succeeding at reducing emissions and the choices are going to become tougher in the next decade. A wide array of international institutions is now considering whether and how to govern geoengineering. Uh, where such technologies involve uh, uh, manipulation of the oceans, the London Dumping Convention has already, already been involved, and it's over here on this chart the, at the bottom left. Um, uh, where they affect biological diversity, the Convention on, on Biological Diversity is exploring regulatory options. And, and where they influence the ozone layer, the Montreal Protocol on the ozone layer might play a role. Wholly new international agreements may, may emerge in the future on geoengineering. International cooperation is also focused on, on improving shared knowledge about the science of climate change. The most prominent of, of, of these efforts are organized under the Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, the IPCC, that sponsors in-depth scientific reviews. And you've, you've heard a lot about that recently because they were, uh, their reviews were challenged. They made some mistakes, and the magnitude of the mistakes were exaggerated by the climate deniers. IPCC also entertains requests which come at arm's length from other, other institutions, such as the UNFCCC, to provide technical information, such as the reporting procedures for emissions inventories. And in, in parallel with the multilateral IPCC process, governments have undertaken well, their own assessments. The US, had, uh, 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 National Academy of Sciences, had an assessment, which, which I was part of, which was published in May, got very little attention because the climate change bill was collapsing at the very moment that we published the report. Um, but these, these are large-scale large, large scale assessments. It's with a four-volume work uh, with, with 90 or 100 uh, scientists involved looking at, at climate change worldwide. So you look at this list. International cooperation on, on climate change has been underway for decades. Yet there remains no central core to the emerging regulatory arrangements on climate change. Instead, what we observe is an array of regulatory elements that is only partially organized in a hierarchy. Some are attached to existing deep and narrow regimes, such as bilateral initiatives that are making it easier for India to obtain fissile material or the efforts to, main to mainstream climate change issues within the, uh, the, World Bank, or the World Bank system. Others involve nascent institutions, such as the emerging markets for, uh, for carbon offsets and trading. Um, such uh, that in some cases have not, have not progressed beyond initial modest efforts, such as the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the United States. By the way, one of the few pieces of good news from the U.S. election was that the effort by two Texas energy companies to essentially reverse California's greenhouse gas initiative uh, was defeated by, by 20 percentage points. Uh, uh, other arrangements are becoming deep, deep quite quickly, such as the EU emissions trading scheme. So all these efforts are like the Cambrian explosion of 500-odd million years ago. A wide variety of diverse institutional forms emerges, and, and through selection and accident, a few are chosen. Looks much more like, like the Cambrian explosion than like some sort of consciously designed system that anybody would have set up to regulate climate change. Uh, the outcome of these efforts is, is that neither extreme uh, on, on my continuum. That is, it's neither at the entirely fragmented end, because there are connections among these regime elements, but it's certainly not integrated. Instead, loosely coupled arrangements are, are linked in a variety of ways in which the UNFCC process is especially important but is not unrivaled 
and not necessarily central, and they together form what we call a regime complex. So that's the regime complex. So how do we explain this? This is not, was not intended, and on the whole was not anticipated or, or, or forecast by analysts. It might be fair to say that most institutionalists like me would have expected a more integrated regime, and that ardent realists would have thought that nothing would happen. Um, so how do we explain the results? The climate change problem lends itself to dispersion of efforts for two initial reasons, at least. First, it's due to problem diversity. The specific cooperation problems inherent in the challenge of climate change are enormously diverse. Climate change is actually many distinct problems. It's not one problem, each with its own attributes, administrative challenges, and distinctive political constituencies. The diversity of problems is in turn associated with, with parallel diverse political patterns of interests, power, information, and beliefs. Interest, power, information, beliefs, the core, the core concepts of international politics. Uh, at least four distinct cooperation problems fall under the broad banner of climate change. One, which is the hardest and most central, is the coordination of emissions reduction. Uh, that's, this, of course, involves a public goods problem. That is, emissions reduction is costly for each state that engages in it and benefits everybody in the world and only benefits the state in a relatively small amount depending on how big it is. Uh, so, and the smaller the state, the less they benefit from their own actions. Uh, so it's a classic public goods issue. Another is compensation such as financial transfers for countries that are un unable or unwilling to adopt emissions controls. For example, essentially all developing countries at Kyoto were unwilling to agree on measures limiting emissions in the absence of payments to them through mechanisms such as the CDM. So you had the bond agreement by which they were exempted from, uh, from the requirement of limiting their emissions. A third problem is managing efforts to brace for a changing climate, that is adaptation. Uh, and this, this, include, this could include geoengineering, as I ha have mentioned. With geoengineering, the problem is exactly the opposite of the first problem. The problem is not that it's too hard to get action, it's too easy to get action. That is, there's a, there could be a great temptation for a country uh, who fe that, that felt that its, for example, uh, its uh, way of life was threatened, uh, for example, by, by sea level rise, to engage unilaterally in geoengineering, for example, by putting up lots of sulfur, uh, sulfur particles or other kinds of particles in the atmosphere to block the sun's, the sun's rays. We know that, that that sort of thing will work. It works when volcanoes emit huge amounts of sulfur into the atmosphere. It's relatively cheap, and you can imagine a country that was desperate uh, engaging in it. So the problem here is just the opposite of the emissions problem. It's not a collective action problem where it's hard to get anybody to act. It's an action where you, it's a problem where unilateral action would be tempting uh, for some countries and who could themselves benefit, they might, they might think, uh, by this action. The final major, major cooperation problem is, is stimulating innovation. That is, developing effective means for technological innovation on climate change. Innovations that will often be difficult to, uh, to commercialize and privatize. So this is once again a, li a little bit more like the first problem, it's a public goods problem. If you develop innovation, others will benefit from it, and you, can't, you probably can't suppress the knowledge and can't therefore fully commercialize it. 
So if you put this differently, there's no single climate change problem. That's the key point. Uh, there's an array of different cooperation problems. Each has its own incentives to free ride, either by doing too little or doing too much, or focusing, in the case of adaptation, only on oneself. Um, each of these individual cooperation problems is linked uh, in, di in different degrees to others. Now, a second reason for dispersion of efforts, in addition to the problem diversity that I've mentioned, is rooted in the, sphere, in, in the severe political difficulties that confront any serious problem for, for controlling emissions. Deep cuts ultimately require global cooperation because, as I've mentioned, the main warming pollutants are costly to regulate and influence economic competitiveness. Deep cuts require governments to adopt regulations that will influence the behavior of millions of firms and many more households. That will raise costs to those firms and those households. A, a, a special challenge in countries that have weak, fragmented, or corrupt systems of public administration. And the benefits from these actions are both uns they're uncertain, they arise far in the future, so they can be denied, and they're sort of hypothetical, and they accrue to the whole world. So it's not surprising that governments are very reluctant to do anything. Most governments, Europe, Europe has been an exception, uh, but most governments are very reluctant to act uh, because they face these, un these, these certain and direct costs which will be felt by, by individuals in their utility bills in which their opponents can point out concretely, and the benefits are uncertain, they're far in the future, and most of them accrue to other people in other countries who don't vote in, in elections in their own country. So these two attributes of the climate change problem, challenge, problem diversity and, and political difficulties interact then with three other features of this issue area. Uh, first, there's divergence of interest among countries. Um, originally differences be, between the US and the EU explain the lack of agreement on the Kyoto system. And, and, and today, Major developing countries also have their own ideas about regulatory institutions. Second, and, and in particular, there are differences of interest about who pays, what the distribution of cost is going to be, uh, how it's going to be allocated. And that's a continual bargaining problem. Secondly, uncertainty has made most governments wary about making costly commitments to global institutions when they're unsure of the benefits, as I mentioned. And they're also unsure whether other countries will honor their own commitments uh, uh, to make comparable efforts. So the worst of all situations for a democratic government would be to make costly efforts that, that impose costs on, on one's voters and then find that not only are they uncertain, but other countries are not making, meeting their commitments and one is left up high and dry. And across most of the, of the cooperation problems in climate change, governments are thirdly having, a, having trouble find, finding productive linkages, for example, to trade. I'll come back to that in a, in a few minutes. Uh, such as linkages between emissions trading systems and compensation. So from a functional standpoint then, the specific international cooperation problems involved in managing climate change are so varied that a single institutional response is exceptionally difficult to organize and sustain. Indeed, the diversity of problems is accompanied typically by a diversity of, of complexes of interest, power, information, and beliefs. And as a result, it's prohibitively uh, complicated to arrange all couplings ex ante into a single comprehensive regime. We saw that at Copenhagen. No single country has the power to impose a solution on all others. We are after hegemony, even if the US were willing to do that. Indeed, interest, power, information, and beliefs are changing quickly, creating large amounts of uncertainty about, around which 
regulatory arrangements uh, are most practical. So what are the implications for policy? We have this very, com very complex set of institutions, not nothing, but they're, frag they're relatively fragmented, not in a hierarchy, but they are linked in some ways to each other, the regime complex for climate change. It's not true that nothing has happened. But secondly, we don't have an integrated regime for the reasons that I have offered. So, but the, now, what should we, how, how should we react? Now, this is not, I'm not a Pollyanna here. I, much, I would much prefer if we had an integrated, comprehensive regime. I think it would be much better shape if we had a regime that was a lot tougher than Kyoto. Uh, but the emergence of a climate change regime complex, rather than an integrated, comprehensive climate change regime, should not, in my view, lead us to despair. On the contrary, policymakers who seek more effective limitation on the magnitude of climate change can, if they, if they act properly, use regime complexes to their advantage. And the availability of a, a regime complex policy strategy uh, suggests that countries most committed to doing something about global warming, such as the European countries, and I think that the previous Labour government was very committed to it. It's not quite yet quite clear how, how committed the current government is to it. They should rethink the strategy that has dominated most of their efforts so far, that is the unwavering investment in massive integrated legal instruments, which is the European hallmark on, on climate change, uh, and, and, the, and the interest in global summits as witnessed in, in Copenhagen. You know, it goes without saying that I don't think that much is going to happen at Cancun. Um, one potential advantage of regime complexes lies in the faults of integrated regulatory systems that are already apparent in the UNFCCC and the Kyoto structure. It's difficult to design effective regulatory systems in the context of a multiplicity of cooperation problems, uh, a broad and shifting distribution of interests, extreme uncertainty about which measures governments are willing and able to implement, and amb ambiguity about how to create viable linkages. When regimes are constructed, therefore, they're likely to be unwieldy. They are a product of, of political compromise. They look a little bit like the U.S. health care bill. Uh, nobody, no individual intelligent person would have, divine, have designed them this way. They come out of political bargaining. Uh, but the very difficulty uh, of renegotiation will lead participants to cling to existing institutions, which then take on monopoly characteristics. Heroic efforts concentrate on the monopoly. Rival efforts even when they could be more effective, are pilloried as distractions, distractions from Kyoto, for example. For example, the broad coalition of developing countries, the G77 and China, lambasted attempts to work in small groups and outside the UNFCCC process in the run-up to Copenhagen, despite mounting evidence that these formal sessions are making little progress, and despite the lack of commitment of these countries to do very much about climate change. The dysfunctions of the UNFCCC monopoly are especially evident in, in the Kyoto system for encouraging low emissions investments in developing countries, the, the clean development mechanism, which I've mentioned before, or CDM. Over the long term, engagement with developing countries is essential. It's mathematically impossible to reach deep cuts in emissions worldwide without these countries' participation. If you look at the lines, the lines, the trend lines for the rich countries are relatively flat, not much movement in terms of, and trend lines for developing countries are very sharply uh, upwardly sloped. So the developing countries use much more, much less carbon per capita. They're, they're, they're less, they have contributed much less to the problem so far, but the rate of growth is very fast in the use of in the, in carbon emissions from developing countries and is quite slow uh, from the rich countries. So it simply is essential 
to involve the developing countries, otherwise nothing effective can be done. The main compensation mechanism, since these countries have not, have not, been, have not agreed to limits, mandatory limits, uh, has been linkage to emission credit markets through the CDM. But studies suggest that a large fraction, perhaps two-thirds or even more, of the CDM credits that are issued do not represent bona fide reductions in emissions. It's supposed to be the case that you're paid because you're reducing emissions. Um, but the, the comparative base is a counterfactual. What would have happened if you had gone ahead with plans? So countries have incentives to propose plans for very strongly um, greenhouse gas forcing uh, plants, such as for HFC 23s, a very strong greenhouse gas, and then to agree to renounce those plans when they're paid to do so. But if the plans were phony in the first place, then the reductions are also illusory. But uh, despite this realization that this is the case, that there are tremendous, two-thirds is David Victor's estimate, it's a pretty careful study, there might be, it might be off somewhere, but it's a very, very large proportion of these, of these credits go for phony reductions. Uh, despite this realization, it's proving very hard to fix the CDM because of the complex and highly politicized nature of UN decision making. Um, and so you wind up uh, with, um, with a CDM which continues even though we know it's quite ineffective because you have an institutional monopoly and you have a decision making process which requires near unanimity to change it. And of course there are beneficiaries of the CDM. China, for example, is a huge beneficiary of the CDM. Uh, while institutional monopolies have dysfunctions, a regime complex can also be too fragmented. Uh, components make applicable one another in ways that yield gridlock, rather than innovation. The lack of hierarchy among specific regimes uh, can create critical veto points. Through forum shopping, there could be a race to the bottom. My argument is not that regime complexes are absolutely better than other institutional forms. I'm not saying that the regime complex is better than a coherent regime if we could have one. What I'm saying is that we can't get a coherent regime and we better work with what we have. If governments and non-state actors that seek more effective management of climate change behave strategically, they can use the fragment institutions to their advantage. Specifically, regime complexes offer two distinct advantages over the monopoly integrated regime. And one is flexibility across issues and the other is adaptability over time. I want to talk about each for, for a minute, just briefly. Flexibility across issues. Without a requirement that all rules be bound within a common institution, it may be possible to adapt rules to distinctly different conditions on different issues. Recall that we have four, at least four different climate change problems, not one. So these different problems may require different rule structures. It may be functional to have different rule structures, and it's a lot easier to do that if you have a regime complex than if you have one set of rules which you have to fit everything to. Different states can sign on to different sets of agreements, for example, making it more likely that they would agree to some sort of constraints on greenhouse gas emissions or some innovative technology uh, planning or, or at least some adaptation uh, funding. Then adaptability over time. Regime complexes may, in my view, have higher adaptability over time. Changes in different issue areas or within the domestic politics of different countries may take place at different rates. Governments may make promises for policy coordination in international negotiations that prove unexpectedly difficult or impossible to implement at home. As one country adjusts its national efforts, other governments, too, may need to make alterations. 
In contrast with integrated, tightly coupled monopoly institutions, regime complexes may be able to adapt more readily to these changes, more readily to unexpected changes in government policy, especially when adaptation requires uh, uh, complex changes in norms and behavior. So these advantages of greater flexibility and adaptation, uh, adaptability uh, contrast with global institutions that are designed for legitimacy, such as the UN, in which universal voting rules often yield inaction. The UNFCCC has never adopted formal procedures for voting because the decision to adopt those procedures required unanimous consent and oil exporting countries refused to agree. Hence, 15 years after the UNFCCC entered into force, the institution still works with provisional rules of procedure and takes all decisions by consensus. Leaders are needed to, it makes the U.S. Senate look like an efficient modern institution. Uh, leaders are needed to incur the cost of organizing an effective response to problems and managing common pool resources, yet those few leaders who are willing and able to commit adequate resources may refuse to make the effort unless they can capture a large share of the benefits themselves. Uh, a decision-making structure is initiated by interested states, that is clubs, with private decision-making rather than universal access, enable those, these leaders to achieve this objective. That is, if you can break it down into a series of clubs and decide that you only, if your club members will agree in a credible way, you can go ahead and do something, it may be a lot easier to act than if your action has to be contingent on essentially close to unanimous decision, at least a consensus uh, uh, a process with 192 countries. The advantages of a regime complex do not arise automatically. Indeed, dispersed institutions, as I've mentioned, can be associated with chaos, a proliferation of veto points, and gridlock. I am not celebrating, uh, as, the, as the solution to all our problems, the regime complex for climate change. And even if these pitfalls are avoided, the transactions costs of regime complexes are going to be higher than for integrated regimes, or likely to be higher than for integrated regimes with a single set of rules. Proposals for specific elements, such as new clubs, that would further fragment climate institutions should therefore be carefully analyzed to see whether they would enhance overall performance of the regime complex or dilute it. Where the proliferation of different forums working on the climate issue, the G20, the, the multilateral emission, emissions forum, forum, various bilateral technology and investment partnerships, private sector and NGO initiatives, whether each of these forums is an asset or liability depends on how these efforts are coupled. So what are the specific implications for policy to be drawn? Uh, I want to focus on some actions that leading governments, NGOs, and firms could pursue in efforts to make a regime complex more effective, given the constraints of politics, which make it impossible, in my view, to have an effective, integrated, comprehensive regime. So what could a regime complex do? First, it could, it could favor and facilitate emissions trading. Trading has become the policy instrument of choice for nearly all governments that are implementing the most demanding policies, despite the demonization of cap and trade in the United States and the appalling, the appalling politics of the last year. Uh, it's still the best, the best option in general. Uh, Well-designed trading systems could be very important because they leverage large amounts of capital because some of that capital could flow to developing countries through offsets, well-designed well offsets. So like the, like the CDM, but better designed than the CDM. The CDM, for all its flaws, has already generated emissions credits, phony or not, worth perhaps 10 times the value of classic government-to-government -government funding. 
Attempts to integrate an integrated UNFCCC Kyoto regime have yielded only one set of accounting procedures and offset rules to govern which kinds of international trades get formal credits, as in the CDM. A more competitive system with a multitude of rules would be more effective. Governments in industrialized countries that are interested in controlling emissions could set their own offset rules, tighter than the CDM, more serious in terms of credibility, and open trading windows to any other country with equally strict or stricter offset policies. Rules requiring buyers to be liable for the quality of the credits they purchase. I'll stop on that. I did a paper on this. It seems odd. Uh, the current system uh, makes sellers liable for the, uh, uh, for the credits they sell. But you can't enforce it against sellers in international politics. And the sellers are big countries. This is meaningless. If buyers are liable, uh, then they are going to monitor the sellers because if they buy phony credits, uh, those who, who, uh, who buy them from them or their firms operating in, in, that, in that umbrella uh, will be shortchanged. So they will then have to monitor uh, the sellers themselves. So uh, rules ought to require buyers to be liable for the quality of the credits they purchase. And this would, would generate additional incentives for quality as well as new pricing mechanisms so markets could assess and reward the highest quality trading. You have competitive markets, not simply one, one set of markets. Within a regime complex, there can be many different trading systems with different prices, trading rules, and transaction volumes. So that's the first thing. A competitive trading system could have big advantages over a monopolistic one. Secondly, a loosely coupled system, regime complex, could create special opportunities uh, uh, for innovation around offsets for land use and forestry. There's recently been some progress on forestry, the red, the reducing emissions from, forest, uh, from deforestation and forest degradation. Uh, well, there we are. Uh, and uh, that is, is very much worthwhile. Third, a regime complex, in contrast with efforts to build a single integrated regime, could more readily manage conflicts and synergies that arise in the joints between climate change and other areas of international cooperation. Here may be the most controversial part of the talk. In climate change, one of the most pressing issues of the joints is accommodating border tax adjustments, in other words, tariffs. Uh, many analysts are wary of these schemes and other trade measures, that is, imposing tariffs on uh, imports from countries that do not have an effective climate change system, that don't charge a price for carbon. Uh, and many analysts are wary of these schemes because they fear that BTAs, border, uh, border tax adjustments, could lead to trade discrimination that in turn will undermine successful cooperation in other areas such as WTO and trade liberalization agreements. I share some of that concern, but I think that border tax adjustments are absolutely essential for, for, for a climate change system to operate. Uh, uh, they make it possible to create private goods, that is, within the areas that have a higher price for carbon, uh, and thus increasing incentives for countries to dock into a carbon system to avoid their imposition. If you didn't have, don't have BTAs, it would be a race to the bottom again. That is, firms will send carbon-producing enterprises, manufacturing enterprises, to the, the zero-carbon price states, and, and, the, and the products will be exported back into the high-carbon price states, which will then find they have to reduce or eliminate their tax on carbon to avoid that competitive disadvantage and the whole system will collapse. So it seems to me it's utterly essential to any coherent climate change system which is not, does not have the utopian expectation of everybody agreeing to a high carbon price at once that there be a system of border tax adjustments or tariffs. 
And these BTAs can be very, very important politically in countries that are considering establishing and maintaining carbon trading systems because they provide some assurance that regulatory efforts at home will not erode investment and jobs. And by the way, the one bill that passed the U.S. Congress, Waxman-Markey, that passed the House, uh, did have arrangements for border tariff adjustments in it. And so did the failed Senate bill, uh, which didn't collapse for that reason, but collapsed for other reasons. So from a political perspective, both international and domestic BTAs, tariffs, uh, on products from low carbon price areas are attractive instruments. But BTAs are only feasible within a, a regime complex, since opposition to such policies by developing countries assures that any formal efforts to negotiate BTAs as part of an integrated comprehensive climate regime would be vetoed. So in the absence of agreement on a substantial price for carbon worldwide, which we don't have, uh, and also in the absence of BTAs, we're not going to have any action which is worth anything on emissions. Now, properly designed border tax adjustments could be consistent with obligations in other institutions, including the WTO. To do so, legal scholars suggest they must meet three conditions. First, a close connection between the means employed and essential climate change policy. They have to be related to climate change. I just explained why they, there is a close connection between them and climate change policy. They are necessary conditions for an effective climate change policy, in my view. Secondly, non-discriminatory application. So the measure does not serve as what WTO calls, quote, a disguised restriction on international trade, unquote. And thirdly, respect for administrative due process, as has been acquired on other issues by the WTO appellate body, that is, transparency and accountability. We suggest that policymakers within the most active climate clubs devise rules for BTAs that are consistent with these guidelines in an effort to avoid conflict with WTO rules. The inclusion of BTAs is an example of a nascent coupling between institutions, the trade, the trade regime and the climate regime, that could exist as a nascent coupling between efforts to manage climate change and the large integrated institutions that govern trade. We have strong trade institutions, and we have to latch onto them for climate change, especially the dispute settlement arrangements and the appellate body. Finally, a regime complex offers the flexibility for cooperative policies, including policies for technological innovation. Johannes Erpelelin of, of Columbia University in a new paper suggests ways in which front-runner countries, he calls them, could collaborate to invest in new climate change technology on condition that states that did not invest, that failed to invest in the first instance, but later adopted the, the technology, compensated them for their investments. Once again, it's a collective action problem. If states think that others will get the benefits, they won't invest in the first place in technology. You have to have some arrangement, some credible arrangement to resolve that problem. There are difficult bargaining problems to be resolved to make such a, such a system as Repellent's work, but it will be facilitated by flexibility on the part of states forming these clubs to select technology sectors in a way that would facilitate productive bargains between states in different situations. For example, if some states are leaders in some technologies, others in other technologies, the issue of how developers could be compensated for their investment might be easier to solve. You make a deal where you simply chose technologies in order to have a balance between two sets of states, uh, front runners and, and, and laggards, and make sure that there were front runners and laggards uh, on both sides of the issues. So you wouldn't just take all technologies that would be promising, you'd choose them for political reasons, bargaining reasons, as well as otherwise. You couldn't do that for you in a universal system. You could do it in a system of clubs. And success in the formation of innovation clubs would make most aspects of the climate change problem easier to solve. 
But even though a coherent, effective, and legitimate comprehensive regime seems politically unattainable, the UNFCCC would still have an important role to play in a climate regime complex. But within the regime complex, the UNFCCC is only one component, although it's, it's a major one. There are dangers lurking in every monopoly, and countries that are most keen to slow global warming could make it clear that if the framework convention does not provide this useful umbrella role, there are other institutional options available. And if that's uh, playing hardball uh, on behalf of the world climate, I'll plead guilty. Let me conclude then. Uh, the international institutions that regulate issues related to climate change are diverse in membership and content. They've been created at different times and by different groups of countries. They've been crafted in the context of diverse in interests, uncertainty, and shifting linkages. They are not integrated, comprehensive, or arranged in a clear hierarchy. They form a loosely linked regime complex rather than a single international regime. I don't want to be interpreted, once again, as viewing the, the political constraints that have created a regime complex rather than a coherent regime as desirable. I'm not an advocate of these constraints. I would remove them tomorrow if I could. Indeed, in view of the serious constraints politically on effective climate change action, both domestic and international, there's little reason for optimism that the climate regime complex that is emerging will lead to reductions in emissions rapid enough to meet widely discussed goals, such as stopping global warming at two degrees above industrial levels. My own view is that your generation is going to face some much more severe choices than we have, that you're likely to face choices between damaging climate change on the one hand and risky geoengineering on the other. It's not going to be a pretty sight. And our generation is leaving you a mess in this, in the, in this respect. Um, it's, it, and it's entirely possible, even likely, that within one to three decades, there will be serious discussions of geoengineering, uh, its benefits for slowing climate change, and its potential costs and uncertainties. Geoengineering in the form of solar radiation management is highly risky, and we really don't want to go there without more knowledge than we have. However, in the absence of effective action on emissions, some states with the capacity are going to seriously consider it. But now we're in a constrained situation in which accomplishment of a comprehensive integrated regime, however desirable, is unattainable for domestic reasons in the major countries, as well as due to perversities you know, of international bargaining. Maintaining the goal of achieving such a comprehensive integrated regime, an unattainable goal, distracts policymakers from more effective strategies. The argument I'm making then is that we should make the best of a bad situation. Regime complex has some distinct advantages over integrated comprehensive regimes, viewed not as ideal constructions, but as real-world political, organizational, informational institutions. Regime complex can be much more flexible and adaptable than integrated comprehensive regimes. In such a regime complex, the UNFCCC would continue to play an umbrella role and provide the framework for a number of essential functions, including serving as a legal setting, providing information, and constituting a forum for negotiations. Over time, if convergence in policy preferences took place, and, a, and if a large number of reinforcing linkages appear, the UNFCCC could yet evolve, if one wants to be optimistic, into an integrated and comprehensive policy regime. At the present juncture, however, and for the foreseeable future, both political reality and the need for flexibility and diversity suggest that it's preferable to work for a loosely linked but effective regime complex for climate change. Thanks very much for listening. I look forward to your questions.
thank you very much. Let me just make sure these are on. Uh, it's, 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 it's very stimulating to listen to you, not just because of the analytical framework you provide, but also, I think, because of your positive appraisal of a number of the policy options going forward. I mean, I wasn't going to make a commentary on what you said, um, and I probably shouldn't immediately, so I'll let the audience speak first. But it certainly raises a lot of, I think, quite substantial explanatory, conceptual, empirical, and political questions. And we look forward to, I look forward to hearing more about them. So let's just take a first set of five questions. Since you have your hand up first, these should be brief questions so we can get as many in as possible. Just say who you are on the question. Hello, thank you for this talk. My name is Kai. I'm working at the Grantham Research Center. Um, I have a question on your explanatory variables, how we arrived at the regime complex. You cited the problem diversity, the uncertainty, and the problem features as explanatory variables. I was wondering what importance you contribute to the actual management of the negotiation process, such as in Copenhagen or Kyoto or any other place, as an explanatory variable to the outcome of these uh, negotiations and the regime complex. Thank you. Thank you. Can I have a mic over here? Robert Faulkner. Sitting here. Thank you. Robert Faulkner. <coughs> Um, your depiction of the regime complex is quite clearly state-centric, and I presume there are good reasons for that. There's a lot of activity now in the private sphere, private governance is being talked up. Could you explain why in your depiction of the regime complex that doesn't feature? Is it irrelevant? Is it dependent on states? Or is there something perhaps missing in your account that might be of great relevance? You just pass the mic to down. Yeah, then we'll come to you later. My name is Tom Hale. Um, I'm curious about your optimism about carbon tariffs. It seems like if carbon tariffs involve costly trade consequences, why would countries be more likely to choose them over costly? Um, why would they be willing to pay that price if they're not willing to pay the price for carbon reductions in the first place? Okay, lady at the back. Are you okay with you? Yes. Yeah, fine. Hi, my name is Maria from the Grantham Institute. Um, my question uh, has to do with how regime complexes, uh, in terms of the Technology Innovation Club, how regime complexes would uh, potentially uh, take care of the problem of intellectual property rights and the violation of intellectual property rights in technology transfers. There's a question coming up. Hello, my name is Tanya, up here. Um, my question is, you pointed out that uh, the political inaction on the side of uh, US is mostly or largely due to um, the anticipated cost of reducing carbon emissions. However, um, proposed legislation such as the Cantwell-Collins Clear Act would have been very popular with the electorate. People would have received a lot of dividends personally, which leads me to think that it's possible that um, this political inaction is due to um, strong influence from, from lobbies in Congress and not out from, of fear. From whom? Strong um, influences from lobbies, from, lobbies. from, from different um, okay. economic interests. That's fine, but we've got a good 30 minutes, so if you haven't, I haven't come to you yet, do not worry, there's a high chance I will, okay. if you're brief. I'll be, I'll be brief, don't worry. You know, I'll stand up, so you, know, you can all see me. Uh, on, the, on the first question, um, the impact of the management process. Uh, I regard uh, the management process at Copenhagen was appalling. 
um, and Kyoto was better, uh, but the decision at Bonn uh, to exempt the developing countries was, was it seemed to me, the worst decision. It simply gave them a, a property right, an entitlement that they had no reason to try to, no reason to give up, and that if, if any uh, developing country were to give it up too cheaply, they'd be criticized by their fellows. Uh, so I, I regard the management process as endogenous to the political process. It's political decisions that drive it. Management uh, 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 process has a, some role, but it's minor compared to it. Uh, secondly, uh, why, why state-centric? Because it, there's a collective action problem here. I think that some, can, I mentioned a few times, what could be done, re regional greenhouse gas, and this is private action, but essentially the collective action problem is so severe and the competitive costs will be so great to private interests if they do a lot that it won't happen. And it's a pipe dream uh, to think it will. It can, it can be helpful in showing, in experimenting, in showing the way, in showing dedication, willingness to pay costs, which may have a, have a political effect, but it's not going to solve the problem. Um, uh, uh, Tom, why, why uh, will people accept uh, tariffs? Because producers in trade policy trump consumers, and the value of, of uh, border tariff adjustments is that they protect producers in the high carbon price countries from the very serious consequences of having a higher price in, as their input than their competitors abroad. And so they're a necessary condition to get producer support for legislation, and that's a necessary condition for uh, legislation in places like the United States. Um, the intellectual property, property rights question. Uh, IPRs are, of course, a, um, um, a controversial issue, and you're quite right uh, that, uh, that there will have to be arrangements in IPRs that, to, that are adapted to climate change situations. And that's what the, this Erpelin this paper that I mentioned is probably about IPRs, how there could be international agreements to provide for uh, uh, property rights in innovations that otherwise could be uh, not commercialized properly. And the last, the last question uh, about, about lobbies, um, uh, how to, the uh, U.S. legislation, legislation only passes in the United States at least, and I expect it's to some extent, probably a lesser extent, but it's also true in Britain and other democracies, if a coalition is brought together, as I mentioned to Tom, uh, which involves producer groups. So the, the only reason Waxman-Markey passed is that it provided, uh, in the short term, very large credits to electric power producers. And that would have been the case in the, in the, in the Graham-Lieberman-Kerry bill that, that went down. It was a case in the EU's uh, first round. So as it, it, it will be necessary to pass climate change legislation to give producer interests uh, a substantial share in the short term. The, bigger, the, the, way, the reason this is possible though and, make, and can make sense is that the discount rate for most firms is 8% oh, eight eight a year. So in other words, what they get in 10 years from now means almost nothing to them. The discount, the real discount rate on climate change is roughly zero percent a year. So a deal is possible. You can, you can give away permits in the short run if you build in a process by which they're automatically taken away in the long run. You can get political support from interest with an 8% discount rate and you can accomplish something for a system which, which the real discount rate ought to be roughly one half of one percent or zero.
Bring the mic at the back. Yeah, gentleman at the back, put his hand up next to you. Yeah. Um, good evening. My name is uh, Josué Tanak. I work in a development bank on Eastern Europe. Two questions. You mentioned at the end of your speech the two degrees and the time uh, constraint. How do you see building the policy prescriptions of your regime complex? One, so that the sum of this muddling through process actually adds up to something anywhere close to the overall objective that one is trying to reach. And number two, if it is one of the aspects is about sending clear long-term signals in terms of economic uh, signals for investment, for example, in mitigation, how does a regime complex try to generate that? Thank you. Right behind you. Yeah, straight up. Um, thank you very much. My name's Teddy Nicholson. I'm an international relations student here at the LSC. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, several times that we can't get an integrated approach, but we will in some way or another in, engage with UNFCCC going forward. It seemed that one of the main problems in Copenhagen was that the structure of the negotiations uh, meant that the incentives discouraged ambition. It meant that a, that a state or a group of states that came with a private commitment to 30% cuts, that was only contingent on... Uh, on other states doing it, and it did become that encourage, discouraging ambition. Is there a way, do you believe, within the negotiating structure to change that incentive? It's not something you see in every multilateral negotiation, but it's pecu it seems peculiar to this one. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jane. I work for a London-based think tank on climate policy. Um, my question kind of builds on the last comment, um, and that is, do you think that the UNFCCC um, warrants any restructuring or reform as part of this process? Is it an inherently um, bad move in terms of negotiating a deal for climate change? And are there maybe elements of the Kyoto? Is it not on? Yeah. And are there elements of the Kyoto Protocol which could be improved, um, or even of the original convention, to um, facilitate an agreement? A lady behind you. Yeah. My name is Masumi Owa, and I'm from Warwick University. My question is, uh, one of your um, implications for policy uh, was fostering innovative cl innovation clubs. And I wonder um, who and how you can get the incentives to form these kind of um, clubs. Thank you. One more. Yes, lady here, with hands up. Put your hand right up. Yeah, great. We will have time for another round, so as I said, Hi, um, I'm Lisa and I'm doing a master's degree in international peace and security at King's College. Um, my question relates to the implications for peace and security of climate change and um, at Copenhagen we saw South Africa taking a greater role in negotiations. Now, bearing in mind that Africa um, will face the brunt of the effects of climate change, um, however having contributed only in a small amount to these effects, what would you say the role of a country like South Africa as the leading economy on the continent um, is going to play in the future in terms of adaptation and mitigation in Africa in resolving these threats to peace and security in Africa? Great. Well, that's five questions, Bob. Now, I, I thought I'd just toss in one or two of my own before you... Oh, can answer. I answer these five first? Yeah, you can. You can. Uh, and then we'll put... All, all my mind will hold at once. Uh, the... Um, uh, the, t the two degrees question, how, how could the sum on, on a regime complex add up to the overall objective? 
I think, uh, all due respect, that's the wrong comparison. The question right now we're at we're at uh, we're headed for four, maybe five degrees. Uh, so the question really is how to how to make it better than that. It's not. It's, I don't think it's going to have to two degrees. I don't. I don't even. I don't think we're going to get anywhere close to two degree target. I think we're probably already almost past it. Uh, if we acted vigorously now, we're not about to act vigorously. So that unfortunately, we're beyond that. The, the real the real policy comparison is: Do we do something effective or nothing? And if it seems to me, if we keep beating our heads against the wall on Kyoto, we're going to do nothing effective. Um, the uh, the second question is is about the uh, the incentives, the lack of incentives for agreement at Copenhagen. And this is, is related to the next two questions. The question, answer to all three questions is that contingent commitments work best in a small number situation. It's very hard to make a promise contingent on 191 other countries doing something. It's all virtually impossible. But it's possible to make a promise contingent on one or two or three or four, or even maybe 10 or 12 other countries doing it. So we're going to see a lot. The action is going to be in the, multilateral, uh, in, the, in the G20 or the 16 members of the MEF, the Multilateral Emitters Forum. Uh, it's not going to be at 192, 192 countries. And, and that's um, the, uh, so any reform in the UNFCCC, the, the, the third question, uh, will be, I think, through competition. I think it, all, it only can be reformed after its advocates are afraid it's going to become totally obsolete. And they, will they, they have a lot of leverage over it because it's a consensus process. And so the developing countries won't agree to change unless they see it slipping out of their hands. They're not going to agree to persuasion on change. It's, it's going to have to be, uh-oh, this whole thing is going down the drain. We're going to have no, no influence over these clubs. Then you might see some, some compromise on their on their part. That's the third and the fourth and, and the fourth question. I've always been a skeptic about the peace and security implications of climate change. There'll probably be some, but I think climate change is going to have systemic implications for economics, for way of life, uh, probably some for peace and security. But I've, I think that there's been too much attempt by the, the security community to try to claim that climate change is a security problem on the premise that the only important problems are security problems. I think a lot of other important problems that are not security problems. And that the security implications of, uh, if that were the only problem with climate change, we could just attack directly the security issues and probably at much lower cost. David. Yeah, here's, here's uh, one question in four parts or four questions. Um, I just like to, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna raise just a few issues and then we'll carry on, audience, so don't despair. The, the questions I want to raise are, are issues I want to cover briefly are explanatory, conceptual, sort of empirical, and political. On the explanatory issues, I just put this very brief, briefly and bluntly. Can we really understand climate change, as your talk suggests, sui generis? Shouldn't we really, as political scientists, be comparing and contrasting gridlock that now takes place across key sectors, Doha, financial market reform, climate, nuclear proliferation. In each of these areas, we see common patterns. Gridlock, institutions that are unable to resolve clashes of interest, the faltering of the US's hegemonic power, the rise of new voices, the exhaustion of the 1945 settlement. Something big is going on. Secondly, conceptual question. What is really the theoretical basis for distinguishing between fragmented and complex regimes? I sort of got it, but I was thinking a bit cynically at some point, isn't to say complex, isn't that just an academic rationalization for the failure of multilateralism and the failure to act? 
Third empirical is really about democracies, the comparison between the performances of authoritarian states versus democracies. It was Nicholas Luhmann who wrote that democracies are those remarkably innovative forms of governance and legitimacy that emerge in the end of the 17th century and come to a, a sort of dysfunctional impasse at the end of the 20th century because certain problems become so complex that political systems oriented to short-termism, um, uh, 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 citizens bounded by territory, the median voter and so on, are not good accountability systems for taking decisions precisely on this kinds of issues we're talking about. And my final question is really um, political. When you talked about uh, not despairing and gave your own account, which I think is very compelling in many ways, emission trading, forestry, BTAs, innovation clubs and so on, you constantly spoke about the you. You would need to do this, one needs to do that. So who is the you now? I mean, where is the politics and leadership, in your view, for some kind of breakthrough, if it happens, going to come from? What coalitions? Who? Because what we really see, going back to my first question, is rather a dangerous-looking exhaustion of the 45 settlement, the emergence of new interests in a post-hegemonic era where sector after sector, who the you is, in your terms, is not entirely clear anymore. You want to do this first? Yes, I'd be delighted. Those are great questions. These are all great questions. But uh, I would say, on the, your first point, yes, we're facing gridlock uh, across the board. The, we celebrate the trade system, but the legislative part of WTO has a big, great big goose egg. There has not been one legislative agreement under GATT WTO since the formation of WTO, which is now 16 years ago. So all the, all the great stuff about it is the appellate body and the fact that we have a body of trade law which can be adjudicated, but the, the, the uh, legislative activity has all, has all been stymied. And we are seeing that. We're seeing, I mean, we're seeing conflicts about international monetary arrangements now. They go back to 19, look, they look like 1971 to 73 when I entered this field when the U.S. Uh, let, let the dollar devalue and follow a loose monetary policy and, and others complained and the U.S. complained about, uh, uh, about their behavior on trade. It just looks like a replay. Uh, uh, no, not much improvement. So I think, yes, we are, and I think, I think if I had a hazard a guess about that, it would be that the um, the diversity of interest is much greater now. After all, how, why did we get WTO? Because the US and Europe rammed it down the throats of the rest of the world. That's why we got WTO. And they made a deal which was mutually beneficial to them. And once they made a deal, it took them seven years, but once they made a deal, they could enforce the deal. And they enforced it by this nice little technique of saying, well, by the way, we didn't, we didn't mention this, but we're abolishing GATT as of today. And you can, you can join the whole thing or you're out of everything. In other words, you're back to having no, no, no liberalized trade and have the high ninth Smoot-Hawley tariff rates in, 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 the, in the U.S. Are the, are the default, 1930 tariff rates. Uh, oh, you, sure, you, you, have a, you have a choice. You have a free choice. You can agree to everything we agreed, the comprehensive undertaking, or you can go back and, and, and submit your, your exports to Smoot-Hawley tariff rates in the United States. Which do you want? Uh, and pre presumably comparable rates, rates in the EU. So uh, that can't, that's not possible anymore. So we often celebrate the fact that the, the world is not as dominated by the US and Europe as it was, uh, but one of the costs is that it's harder to do anything. 
Now, the second question is on um, the, um, is, it, is this regime currently just a rationalization? Uh, uh, no, I don't, I'm not rationalizing at all. I, I'm not saying it's a great thing. I'm just saying it's, it's, this is political reality, and we have to adapt to political reality. Um, the empirical issue on democracies, I don't know if it's empirical, maybe it's an empirical issue. It's certainly a, it's an issue, issue about, about the, how well democracies function. I think that democratic theorists, and here I look at you, uh, need to rethink democracy. It, it's not, nobody has come along with a, with a better system. We're not saying, oh, here's this great authoritarian system, we can just adopt it. Uh, we don't really believe that. But, but it's the, the, great, the great irony of the last, 50, last 20 years is that democracy has been at the same time celebrated. Every, a whole world ought to be democratic. We're exporting it to you. At the same time that we have let it degenerate at home. It's a dramatic contradiction. Uh, and I think we need some real innovation. I think that Jim Fishkin's notion of deliberative polling is an innovation. That is, you say, okay, let, let a small number of people who are representative look deeply at an issue, sorry, sorry, deeply at an issue uh, in a way that is serious, and then tell us what they, ordinary citizens, randomly chosen, would say about the issue, if, and we might say about it, if we spent three days thinking about it and listening to both sides. Um, who, what's, the, what's the you? Well, the problem is uh, that, once again, com comes, back, comes back to democracy. Uh, I don't want to despair because I'm deeply a, a Democrat. I think democracy has shown the ability to reinvent itself in the past. Uh, so the, the democracy, I'm not sure democracy is the right word for the late 17th century. A representative government, that wasn't really democracy. Uh, the the uh, U.S. Constitution is not a democratic document. If you look at it in, 19, in, in 1787 terms, it's a representative government document. But democracy has, re has reinvented itself a number of times. Uh, in the United States, it did so um, after the Civil War. Well, it did so in the 1820s after the Civil War. It did, it did so again in the uh, period right before World War I. And it did so again in, in the New Deal. So democracy can reinvent itself. And I think that uh, one, one of the keys to international problems like, like climate change is indeed domestic democracy and its functioning. Okay, thank you. Okay, we'll have at least one more cluster, and then I think we'll probably stop. So, yes, you guy with the hands up there. Hi. Um, I think you've, you've broached on this subject a couple times, but basically the question is to do with if the, if the oil and gas companies and the mining companies around the world have the power in, 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 in the lobbies and whether or not bills get passed from the governments, then, and if economics is driving the, the ETS and the BTAs, which I think is the solution, then why aren't we just, I don't know, appealing or making the economics so that the oil and gas companies and the mining companies do ratify or agree to the, to the Kyoto Agreement or other agreements like that? Thank you. Lady. Thank you. Um, Mary Bukarin and I study environmental policy and regulation here at LSE, um, up here. Um, I was wondering whether you could elaborate on what the global or international civil society could do to facilitate the UNIF triple C reform. Thank you. you just pass the mic down um, to, yes. Um, uh, hello, uh, Liliana Pop. Um, I w uh, you answered this very emphatically in answer to uh, um, 
a previous question. You said that um, it has to be a, a state-centered uh, um, issue because private interests could not resolve the problem. But maybe there is um, um, some some uh, room for um, understanding innovation not as a, a state issue but as a, as a market issue. Uh, I wonder whether in in the study you mentioned uh, published in May you also covered um, um, any any study of of how comparative advantage might be defined by within various industries um, around uh, sustainability. Robert Wade. Robert Wade, um, you mentioned the G20 uh, a few times. I wondered what sort of role uh, do you think the G20 um, and the underlying Sherpa process of the G20 can play in this whole thing? How does it fit in relative to, for example, the initiatives in the UN and the various other parts of the regime complex that you describe? Thank you. Finally, yep. yeah. Hi, Jerome Bowen from Wally Parsons. Um, my question is about how do you think the changing global demographics will affect uh, our progress towards uh, climate action? Okay, that's five. Anybody really desperate? <laughs> yes, lady at the back. Your hand up went first. <laughs> Just one more. That was. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to go back to the question of uh, who is you, and you mentioned a lot about political process being the bottleneck. So I was wondering what's the role, how do you see the role of citizen and internet and news media changing, how that would affect uh, maybe changing the dynamics of the politics? Okay, I'm, I'm going to take up that at the same time as the second question also came from the balcony about global civil society. They're, they're, they're related, related questions. I'll come to that at the end. Um, on the oil and gas lobby, the basic, um, a simple, simply put at least for American politics, the more salient an issue in the public mind, the lower the impact of narrowly defined lobbies. Uh, when, for example, when banking was just an issue that nobody cared about, the bankers ran it. The bankers, bankers ran Basel II. The bankers ran U.S. banking policy until they ran us into a ditch. Uh, and when banking became a high politics issue, the bankers got rolled in the, in the, Dodd, in, in the, in the Dodd-Franks bill in the U.S. in 2010. So the basic, if you want, if you want climate change action, raise the heat. Raise the political heat. Because the more people care about it, the more it becomes a salient issue, the more that happens. In the U.S., it's been way down at the bottom. Of, people ask polls about you know, the top 20 issues, and it's 18 or 20. And when that happens, the lobbies are, are going to dominate, absolutely. Um, so that's it, when it's, it's, up, it's really up to your generation to, to raise the salience of this issue. That's why I go around talking about, about, about climate change regimes. Um, the... Uh, market issue as for, for innovation. Uh, I, I, th I, I wish I knew more about this. It's, it seems to me, though, that uh, market issue, markets, oh, Robert Wade's coming up next, he's told us this many times, markets are structured largely by government policy. Uh, 
Uh, so if, if, if you want to have innovation, it's going to have to be innovated by market. I don't think any of us is going to say have some U.S. Energy Department decide what innovations are, are worthwhile. The great attraction of cap and trade was that it would raise the price of carbon and generate innovation because there would be huge profits to be made from innovations that would maintain the same process of, electric, of electricity production or manufacturing production or automobiles uh, which had lower carbon emissions because that would save a lot of money in, in the effective, the equivalent to a carbon tax that a, um, uh, a, a cap and trade produces. So there's no, there's no substitute for raising the price of carbon. And if you raise the price of carbon, a lot of things are going to happen uh, in innovation in, in the private sector. So the problem is it's very difficult to get political action to raise the price of carbon. Um, now, Bob, Bob Way, thanks, thanks for coming. Nice to see you. Uh, the role of G20, I think that the G20 is the right size. It's about the same size as the multilateral emitters form, which is 16 or 17. Uh, so we're talking about, in both cases, more than 85% of carbon emissions are accounted for by these groups. So if you, if you, get, them all, if you get the G20 to agree or the, or the 16 or 17 countries of the emitters form to agree, you will have solved the problem because you'll have 85% and most other countries will find themselves coming along because everybody will have, the big, the big guys will have agreed. Uh, and it's a small enough group that you can actually identify the participants and say, I'll only do it if you, 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 and you will do it. 1820 is large for that, it's an upper limit, but it's not like 192. Uh, so I think these are the right size groups. I think it's a tactical issue and it depends on how leadership is exercised whether it'll be the G20 or some other group with approximately the same number and very similar to, this, to the, same, the same constituency. I don't think that matters too much, uh, but I think that it's, it is the right size group. Um, changing demographics, well, I, I, um, I'm here to appeal to people in the younger generation, a couple of generations younger than I am, uh, because you're gonna have to, to uh, take the lead. Uh, it, the problem won't be solved unless people in, who are now in their 20s take it much more seriously than people who are now in their 40s, 50s, and 60s have been, and 70s have been, have been taking it. Now, finally, uh, the question of global civil society or who is, who is you, the media, and that's, and that's related, and this is, um, this is the sermon part of it. That is, if, this is going, if, if there's gonna be effective action, as I have stressed, it has to be by governments, but it has to be, it has to be driven by Publics, democratic publics. Uh, if they're going to work effectively, they have to network internationally because no single government will do it unless others are also, also doing it. So it's going to be a lot easier if, there's public, if there are public movements in 10 of these G20 countries strongly pushing for climate change, or 15 of them, it would be a lot easier for any of these governments to agree than if there are only public movements pushing for three or four and they feel they have to pay everybody else off to join. So it's, it is terribly important to opt for, the, for your generation to emphasize this issue, to, to work on it, to publicize it, to lobby about it, to form political movements or political groups uh, that focus on it. I think it is, if not the mo probably the most important, certainly one of the two or three most important issues for your generation. And you can take advantage of the internet to network internationally because a movement that is transnational and involves democracies across the world is gonna be a lot more legitimate and a lot more effective than one that only operates on, in one country or in one continent. Let me ask you one final question about you know, leadership and politics. You, it, it looked like Obama might, might, might lead the US in this 
domain. It looked like he might negotiate a breakthrough. It's now clear that he can't with, with the United States, in your view, because unless the United States acts decisively, it gives so many excuses to other countries That's not right. to do so. And so the role of the US in the future as a sort of harbinger of things to come doesn't look good. I mean, it doesn't look good. So I just wonder, if, you know, you as, you as an American political scientist reflecting on this, whether you can point to any, any chinks of light that we might have not seen over here. Well, on climate change is extremely disappointing. The New Yorker had a very good article on this about four or five weeks ago. I think it was quite accurate. Um, my, my, my youngest son is chief economist for Environmental Defense Fund. And he was, he, he was working on these bills all the time for the last two years, in and out of Senator Kerry's office and home. And so it was pretty crushing when the, everything came crashing down. Uh, it came crashing down because I think essentially the, oppos the opposition, that I think ultimately the, the self-interest is so important in politics, people felt they were going to have higher electricity bills if cap and trade were passed. That was played on by unscrupulous politicians to say, well, it's not a real problem, uh, and therefore, why are you paying these big bills? It's, put in, it's being imposed on you by the elite. And then the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, who was reelected this week, um, sabotaged the whole enterprise uh, at a crucial moment. Uh, the White House didn't support it strongly. They went for uh, health care first, and they decided they were tired and were afraid they were going to get beaten in the election, which they were anyway. And, and so they, uh, they backed off. Uh, so uh, there wasn't much um, credit to go around. I think that Kerry and Lieberman really uh, pushed for it. They, they deserve credit for it. Uh, the um, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham wanted to be involved, and he was undercut both by the Republican leadership and by the White House and the majority leader, which didn't give him enough, any room to, to, to stick with it. Uh, so there's a, lot of there's a lot of blame to go around. Uh, I think that the problem is going to become manifest more and more. I think we're going to actually be seeing the effects of climate change increasingly uh, in Warmer, we and warmer weather and hotter summers and other negative effects. So I think that, that politics will turn around, uh, but uh, we need a new, um, it's gonna take a while because it's been, it's been, it's been burned now. So uh, we would hope that in the next Obama administration, if there is one, uh, he, can, he can renew the fight for it. And in the, in the interim, here's something you can do. You can invite Tom, uh, Tom Pirello to come talk to LSE. Tom Pirello is a congressman from central Virginia, which is a conservative area, who, who was a Yale graduate, he's about 38 years old, who won his seat in 2008 in, in a district that, that Obama lost. He won it by less than 1%. He was the only, to Obama's credit, uh, Pirello was the only congressman Obama went to campaign for. Of course, his campaigning district, he didn't carry even in 2008, so how much good it did, I don't know. Uh, Pirello lost by 3%, that is, which is amazingly good performance, considering the Democrats lost by 10 to 20% over the 2000, uh, I haven't seen the exact figures, eight vote. Um, invite someone like that here, give him some honor.
for being a politician from a coal district, a conservative district, who knew what was right and fought for climate change and didn't back down. He, he defended he defended it. And actually, I think if he'd, he, did, he did well in the election, if he'd backed off, he probably would have lost by 10%. Who would have supported him then? So uh, that's the sort of politician we should at least uh, give some credit for. You're going to hear from him again at some, sometime sooner or later. So what can we say? Um, uh, thank you for your, for not just your analytical contribution tonight, but you know, through the decades which has set the standard. Um, your talk was also, you know, both inspiring, I think, it tells us, you know, gives us signs of things the next step, but it's also very sobering. 45 degrees, you say, is the minimum in a sense, not the minimum, but where you expect things to go. And I think if Bob Cohen says that and I was going to put money in the betting shops now, I'd go straight out and put it on 45 degrees with some certainty, unfortunately that might be where we're heading. So thank you very much for a very, very engaging evening.